0: section 14 of a journey from this world to the next by henry fielding this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by elizabeth clatt book 19, chapter 7 part 2 there remained nothing now to be done but to prevail with the earl of northumberland to comply with what his son so ardently desired which purpose he set out immediately for London, and begged it as the greatest favour that I would accompany my father, who was also to go thither the week following. I could not refuse his request, and as soon as we arrived in town, he flew to me with the greatest raptures to inform me his father was so good that finding his happiness depended on his answer, he had given him free leave to act in this affair as would best please himself, and that he had now no obstacle to prevent his wishes. It was then the beginning of the winter, and the time for our marriage was fixed for the latter end of March. The consent of all parties made his access to me very easy, and we conversed together both with innocence and pleasure. As his fondness was so great that he contrived all the methods possible to keep me continually in his sight, he told me one morning he was commanded by his father to attend him to court that evening, and begged I would be so good as to meet him there. I was now so used to act as he would have me that I made no difficulty of complying with his desire. Two days after this, I was very much surprised at perceiving such a melancholy in his countenance and alteration in his behaviour as I could no way account for. But, by importunity, at last I got from him that Cardinal Wolsey, for what reason he knew not, had peremptorily forbid him to think any more of me, and when he urged that his father was not displeased with it, the Cardinal, in his imperious manner, answered him he should give his father such convincing reasons why it would be attended with great inconveniencies, that he was sure he could bring him to be of his opinion. On which he turned from him, and gave him no opportunity of replying. I could not imagine what design the cardinal could have in intermeddling in this match, and I was still more perplexed to find that my father treated my lord Percy with much more coldness than usual. He, too, saw it, and we both wondered what could possibly be the cause of all this. But it was not long before the mystery was made clear by my father, who, sending for me one day into his chamber, let me into a secret which was as little wished for as expected. He began with the surprising effects of youth and beauty, and the madness of letting go those advantages that they might procure till it was too late, when we might wish in vain to bring them back again. I stood amazed at this beginning. He saw my confusion, and bid me sit down and attend to what he was going to tell me, which was of the greatest consequence and he hoped I would be wise enough to take his advice, and act as he should think best for my future welfare. He then asked me if I should not be much pleased to be a queen. I answered with the greatest earnestness that so far from it I would not live in a court again to be the greatest queen in the world, that I had a lover who was both desirous and able to raise my station even beyond my wishes. I found this discourse was very displeasing, my father frowned and called me a romantic fool and said if i would hearken to him he could make me a queen for the cardinal had told me that the king from the time he saw me at court the other night liked me and intended to get a divorce from his wife and to put me in her place and ordered him to find some method to make me a maid of honour to her present majesty that in the meantime he might have an opportunity of seeing me it is impossible to express the astonishment these words threw me into And notwithstanding that the moment before, when it appeared at so great a distance, I was very sincere in my declaration how much it was against my will to be raised so high, yet now the prospect came nearer, I confess my heart fluttered, and my eyes were dazzled with a view of being seated on a throne. My imagination presented before me all the pomp, power, and greatness that attended a crown, and I was so perplexed I knew not what to answer, but remained as silent as if I had lost the use of my speech. My father, who guessed what it was that made me in this condition, proceeded to bring all the arguments he thought most likely to bend me to his will. At last I recovered from this dream of grandeur, and begged him, by all the most endearing names I could think of, not to urge me dishonourably to forsake the man who I was convinced would raise me to an empire if in his power, and who had enough in his power to give me all I desired. But he was deaf to all I could say, and insisted that by next week I should prepare myself to go to court he bid me consider of it, and not prefer a ridiculous notion of honour to the real interest of my whole family, but above all things not to disclose what he had trusted me with, on which he left me to my own thoughts. When I was alone I reflected how little real tenderness this behaviour showed to me, whose happiness he did not at all consult, but only looked on me as a ladder on which he could climb to the height of his own ambitious desires, and when I thought on his fondness for me in infancy, I could impute it to nothing but either the liking me as a plaything, or the gratification of his vanity in my beauty. But I was much too divided between a crown and my engagement to Lord Percy to spend much time in thinking of anything else, and although my father had positively forbid me, yet when he came next, I could not help acquainting him with all that had passed, with the reserve only of the struggle in my own mind on the first mention of being a queen. I expected he would have received the news with the greatest agonies, but he showed no vast emotion, however he could not help turning pale, and, taking me by the hand, looked at me with an air of tenderness, and said, If being a queen would make you happy, and it is in your power to be so, I would not for the world prevent it, let me suffer what I will. This amazing greatness of mind had on me quite the contrary effect from what it ought to have had for instead of increasing my love for him it almost put an end to it, and I began to think if he could part with me the matter was not much. And I am convinced when any man gives up the possession of a woman whose consent he has once obtained, let his motive be ever so generous, he will disoblige her. I could not help showing my dissatisfaction, and told him I was very glad this affair sat so easily on him. He had not power to answer, but was so suddenly struck with this unexpected ill-natured turn I gave his behaviour, that he stood amazed for some time and then bowed, and left me. Now I was again left my own reflections, but to make anything intelligible out of them is quite impossible. I wished to be a queen, and wished I might not be one. I would have my Lord Percy happy without me, and yet I would not have the power of my charms be so weak that he could bear the thought of life after being disappointed in my love. But the result of all these confused thoughts was a resolution to obey my father. I am afraid there was not much duty in the case— though at that time I was glad to take hold of that small shadow to save me from looking on my own actions in the true light. When my lover came again I looked on him with that coldness that he could not bear, on purpose to rid myself of all importunity, for since I had resolved to use him ill, I regarded him as the monument of my shame, and his every look appeared to upbraid me. My father soon carried me to court. There I had no very hard part to act. For, with the experience I had had of mankind, I could find no great difficulty in managing a man who liked me, and for whom I not only did not care, but had an utter aversion to. But this aversion he believed to be virtue, for how credulous is a man who has an inclination to believe! And I took care sometimes to drop words of cottages and love, and how happy the woman was who fixed her affections on a man in such a station of life that she might show her love without being suspected of hypocrisy or mercenary views!— All this was swallowed very easily by the amorous king, who pushed on the divorce with the utmost impetuosity, although the affair lasted a good while, and I remained most part of the time behind the curtain. Whenever the king mentioned it to me, I used such arguments against it as I thought most likely to make him the more eager for it. Begging that, unless his conscience was really touched, he would not on my account give any grief to his virtuous queen for in being her handmaid i thought myself highly honoured and i would not only forgo a crown but even give up the pleasure of ever seeing him more rather than wrong my royal mistress this way of talking joined to his eager desire to possess my person convinced the king so strongly of my exalted merit that he thought it a meritorious act to displace the woman whom he could not have so good an opinion of because he was tired of her and put me in her place after about a year's stay at court as the King's love to me began to be talked of, it was thought proper to remove me, that there might be no umbrage given to the Queen's party. I was forced to comply with this, though greatly against my will, for I was very jealous that absence might change the King's mind. I retired again with my father to his country seat, but it had no longer those charms for me which I once enjoyed there, for my mind was now too much taken up with ambition to make room for any other thoughts. During my stay here, My royal lover often sent gentlemen with me with messages and letters, which I always answered in the manner I thought would best bring about my designs, which were to come back again to court. In all the letters that passed between us there was something so kingly and commanding in his, and so deceitful and submissive in mine, that I sometimes could not help reflecting on the difference betwixt this correspondence and that with Lord Percy. Yet I was so pressed forward by the desire of a crown, I could not think of turning back. In all, I wrote, I continually praised his resolution of letting me be at a distance from him, since at this time it conduced indeed to my honour, but what was of ten times more weight with me, I thought it was necessary for his, and I would sooner suffer anything in the world than be any means of hurt to him, either in his interest or reputation. I always gave some hints of ill-health, with some reflections how necessary the peace of mind was to that of the body. By these means I brought him to recall me again by the most absolute command, which I, for a little time, artfully delayed, for I knew the impatience of his temper would not bear any contradictions, till he made my father in a manner force me to what I most wished, with the utmost appearance of reluctance on my side. When I had gained this point, I began to think which way I could separate the king from the queen, for hitherto they lived in the same house. The Lady Mary, the queen's daughter, being then about sixteen, I sought for emissaries of her own age that I could confide in, to instil into her mind disrespectful thoughts of her father, and make a jest of the tenderness of his conscience about the divorce. I knew she had naturally strong passions, and that young people of that age are apt to think those that pretend to be their friends are really so, and only speak their minds freely. I afterwards contrived to have every word she spoke of him carried to the King, who took it all as I could wish, and fancied those things did not come at first from the young lady, but from her mother. He would often talk of it to me, and I agreed with him in his sentiments. But then, as a great proof of my goodness, I always endeavoured to excuse her, by saying a lady so long time used to be a royal queen, might naturally be a little exasperated with those she fancied would throw her from that station she so justly deserved. By these sorts of plots I found the way to make the king angry with the queen, For nothing is easier than to make a man angry with a woman he wants to be rid of, and who stands in the way between him and his pleasure, so that now the King, on the pretence of the Queen's obstinacy in a point where his conscience was so tenderly concerned, parted with her. Everything was now plain before me. I had nothing farther to do but to let the King alone to his own desires, and I had no reason to fear, since they had carried him so far, but that they would urge him on to do everything I aimed at. I was created Marchioness of Pembroke. This dignity sat very easy on me, for the thoughts of a much higher title took from me all feeling of this, and I looked upon being a Marchioness as a trifle, not that I saw the bauble in its true light, but because it fell short of what I had figured to myself I should soon obtain. The King's desires grew very impatient, and it was not long before I was privately married to him. I was no sooner his wife than I found all the Queen come upon me. I felt myself conscious of royalty, and even the faces of my most intimate acquaintance seemed to me to be quite strange. I hardly knew them. Height had turned my head, and I was like a man placed on a monument, to whose sight all creatures at a great distance below him appear like so many little pygmies crawling about on the earth, and the prospect so greatly delighted me that I did not presently consider that in both cases descending a few steps erected by human hands would place us in the number of those very pygmies who appeared so despicable our marriage was kept private for some time for it was not thought proper to make it public the affair of the divorce not being finished till the birth of my daughter elizabeth made it necessary but all who saw me knew it for my manner of speaking and acting was so much changed with my station that all around me plainly perceived i was sure i was a queen while it was a secret i had yet something to wish for i could not be perfectly satisfied till all the world was acquainted with my fortune but when my coronation was over and i was raised to the height of my ambition instead of finding myself happy i was in reality more miserable than ever for besides that the aversion i had naturally to the king was much more difficult to dissemble after marriage than before and grew into a perfect detestation my imagination which had thus warmly pursued a crown grew cool when i was in the possession of it and gave me time to reflect what mighty matter i had gained by all this bustle and I often used to think myself in the case of the fox-hunter, who when he is toiled and sweated all day in the chase as if some unheard-of blessing was to crown his success, finds at last all he has got by his labour is a stinking nauseous animal. But my condition was yet worse than his, for he leaves the loathsome wretch to be torn by his hounds, whilst I was obliged to fondle mine, and meanly pretend him to be the object of my love for the whole time I was in this envied, this exalted state, I led a continual life of hypocrisy, which I now know nothing on earth can compensate. I had no companion but the man I hated. I dared not disclose my sentiments to any person about me, nor did any one presume to enter into any freedom of conversation with me, but all who spoke to me talked to the Queen, and not to me for they would have said just the same things to a dressed-up puppet, if the King had taken a fancy to call it his wife. And as I knew every woman in the court was my enemy, from thinking she had much more right than I had to the place I filled, I thought myself as unhappy as if I had been placed in a wild wood, where there was no human creature for me to speak to, in a continual fear of leaving any traces of my footsteps, lest I should be found by some dreadful monster, or stung by snakes and adders for such as spiteful women to the objects of their envy. In this worst of all situations I was obliged to hide my melancholy and appear cheerful. This threw me into an error the other way, and I sometimes fell into a levity in my behaviour that was afterwards made use of to my disadvantage. I had a son, dead-born, which I perceived abated something of the King's ardour, for his temper could not brook the least disappointment. This gave me no uneasiness, for not considering the consequences, I could not help being best pleased when I had least of his company. Afterwards I found he had cast his eyes on one of my maids of honour, and whether it was owing to any art of hers, or only to the King's violent passions, I was in the end used even worse than my former mistress had been by my means." The decay of the King's affection was presently seen by all those court sycophants who continually watch the motions of royal eyes, and the moment they found they could be heard against me they turned my most innocent actions and words, nay, even my very looks, into proofs of the blackest crimes. The King, who was impatient to enjoy his new love, lent a willing ear to all my accusers, who found ways of making him jealous that I was false to his bed he would not so easily have believed anything against me before but he was now glad to flatter himself that he had found a reason to do just what he had resolved upon without a reason and on some slight pretenses and hearsay evidence i was sent to the tower where the lady who was my greatest enemy was appointed to watch me and lie in the same chamber with me This was really as bad a punishment as my death, for she insulted me with those keen reproaches and spiteful witticisms which threw me into such vapours and violent fits that I knew not what I uttered in this condition. She pretended I had confessed, talking ridiculous stuff with a set of low fellows whom I had hardly ever taken notice of, as could have imposed on none but such as were resolved to believe. I was brought to my trial, and to blacken me the more, accused of conversing criminally with my own brother whom indeed I loved extremely well, but never looked on him in any other light than as my friend. However, I was condemned to be beheaded or burnt as the King pleased, and he was graciously pleased from the great remains of his love to choose the mildest sentence. I was much less shocked at this manner of ending my life than I should have been in any other station, but I had had so little enjoyment from the time I had been a Queen that death was the less dreadful to me, The chief things that lay on my conscience were the arts I had made use of to induce the King to part with the Queen, my ill-usage of Lady Mary, and my jilting Lord Percy. However, I endeavoured to calm my mind as well as I could, and hoped these crimes would be forgiven me. For in other respects I have led a very innocent life, and always did all the good-natured actions I found any opportunity of doing. From the time I had it in my power, I gave a great deal of money amongst the poor. I prayed very devoutly and went to my execution very composedly. Thus I lost my life at the age of twenty-nine, in which short time, I believe, I went through more variety of scenes than many people who live to be very old. I had lived in a court, where I spent my time in coquetry and gaiety. I had experienced what it was to have one of those violent passions which makes the mind all turbulence and anxiety. I had had a lover whom I esteemed and valued, and at the latter part of my life I was raised to a station as high as the vainest woman could wish but in all these various changes I never enjoyed any real satisfaction, unless in the little time I lived retired in the country, free from all noise and hurry, and while I was conscious I was the object of the love and esteem of a man of sense and honour. On the conclusion of this history, Minos paused for a small time, and then ordered the gate to be thrown open for Anna Boleyn's admittance on the consideration that whoever had suffered being the queen for four years and been sensible during all that time of the real misery which attends that exalted station ought to be forgiven whatever she had done to obtain it here ends this curious manuscript the rest being destroyed and rolling up pens tobacco c It is to be hoped heedless people will henceforth be more cautious what they burn or use to other vile purposes, especially when they consider the fate which had likely to have befallen the divine Milton, and that the works of Homer were probably discovered in some chandler's shop in Greece. End of section fourteen. End of A Journey from This World to the Next by Henry Fielding.